Welcome to the CDC Podcast. Today we are continuing our series focusing on game critics. With me this time is the founder and overlord of Critical Distance, the permadeath guy, PhD candidate, advocator of abolishing blog comments, and the man Mitch Krapata called Blogger of the Year in 2009, Mr. Ben Abraham. Hey, Eric. How you doing? I'm fine. Mainly, I've been the way I've been doing this is asking, how did you get start? How did you get started in video game criticism? What like sparked the idea that that video games are worth serious consideration, that they're worthy of critical focus? Mm-hmm. Where where did that come from with you? I don't know. I guess you go really far back and look at sort of the at the kind of family environment I grew up in. I had two parents that were both very interested in, I guess, critical engagement with, with, I guess, the media and the entertainment that they consumed. So, you know, there's a great long history in our family of, you know, shouting at the TV whenever someone says something stupid or, you know, stuff like that. So I guess my earliest entry into criticism is through, you know, just just seeing it in in my immediate vicinity, you know. Um, If you want to think about it like that, I mean, I guess that's sort of maybe a funny way to think of it, but... Yeah, I guess I had a I had role models who were always interested in thinking about the stuff that they were consuming. And so when it came to my hobbies and the things that I got interested in, which in my early teens was basically just video games. <laughs> I was really only interested in video games and a few other things, but the lot of, the vast majority of my recreational time was spent playing video games. I used to just spend a whole weekend playing Half-Life or the original Call of Duty games in my room on my PC that I built just so that I could play video games. But uh, that's critically looking at what you're doing, but, like, the depth that you go to, was there any, like, I don't know, like, spark within your engagement with video games? Yeah, so I guess I got interested in video game criticism because I was doing my undergrad honors thesis on... um, games and music in games. I was doing a music degree at the time and I had to do, like I had to produce a thesis about some kind of topic and I wanted to combine my two interests at the time which was music and video games and I started looking online for just anyone or anything that had talked about games in a sort of critical pseudo-academic sort of way. Mostly I was just looking for sources but... What year about was this? I started at the end of 2007 because that was when I started looking for a thesis topic. And then in 2008, I spent the year writing my thesis and researching it. And I think late 2007 was when I first discovered the Brainy Gamer blog, which was probably the very first game criticism blog that I encountered. And and from there on, everyone else managed to find footholds into every other critical blog in the sphere, right? Yeah, it's sort of hard to decide how much credit to give just to Michael, but the the Brainy Gaming was a big inspiration, I think, for a lot of people who were interested in doing something similar but hadn't really, I don't know. I guess you, you end up in a situation where you kind of don't know that something is possible until you see someone else doing it, if that makes sense, and Michael was just the only one doing it. I think I came to his blog via Kotaku, Probably a Maggie Green link, yeah. And there is basically when you found the critical circle. How much of that ended up in your thesis? Well, not much in that thesis because I, I needed like academic sources more than anything else. I mean, blog posts are great, and a, 
a lot of them are getting really, really good, but they're not yet academic in the sense that you want someone, yeah, I, I guess I want Authoritative. Wanted, it's not even authoritative because there's plenty of authority in the, the way and the things that Blogacy writes about. It's just that you want someone with a big enough overarching idea that you can kind of use it and, and apply it in your own way. I guess a lot of the stuff that the video game blogosphere produces is very specific and it's, I mean, it's constrained by the blog format. No one really writes more than maybe a thousand words. You don't really see too many like 20,000 word. Ahem. <laughs> you don't see that many 20,000 word blog posts, whereas a really insightful and kind of world changing or paradigm shifting idea probably needs to be explained in you know, 10, 20,000 words or something. I mean, that doesn't have to be the case, but, you know, usually it's it's more more the case than not. So I guess the stuff that is the overarching frameworks, the really big ideas, the sort of philosophical approaches, they're still in books and they're not on blogs. Other than your thesis during that time, you started up your own blog, SLRC. Yes. Which, could, which changed its meaning from week to week. <laughs> yeah, it did. I um, got kind of bored with having just one name for the blog, I think. So I, I changed it a number of times. I can't even remember what half of them were. I probably should have written them down. I remember a few of them. Stereo, left, right, center. Yeah, I think that was the original, because that was the sort of music focus, music and audio. Mm-hmm. And I, I do remember when you finally closed it down, I called it So Long, Righteous Comrade. Mm. Yeah, it's a good acronym, that one. Yeah, but uh, what about your work there? Because that's in, that's where everyone found you. It's pretty much what you were known for for a good number of years. Well, I don't think it's what everyone found me for, but I mean, a lot of people have haven't. You know, a lot of people wouldn't even be aware of that blog, I guess, because that finished up. In well, they are now. Two thousand and nine, early two thousand ten, and I think like I don't know. I don't want to put like a, a number figure on it, but. Certainly a really large proportion of people have kind of only just joined the blogosphere in the past couple of years, so that's all ancient history to them, I suppose. It's still worth talking about. Yeah. Uh, especially some two of the more famous works both appeared there, both having to do with Far Cry 2. Yeah, so what was, I mean, uh, I know that you're referring to the permadeath story. Uh, the other one was... Uh, the other one was uh, Frank Bilger's is dead. Oh yeah, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. That was a good piece. I really liked that piece. That was really fun. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, those just you picked out two of those, and I think that's funny that those are the ones that sort of ended up being the most well known because those, I guess, are kind of the more creative pieces that I've written. They're not really the most critical. I mean, I've written straight criticism. I've written quite a fair bit of it, but I guess the success that I've most had is in something that's not quite just criticism, something that is in, I don't know, it, it's a mix of creativity and production of something with a critical point. I guess I don't want to make too much of a parallel because it's not quite the same, but Ian Burgos' new book, Alien Phenomenology, introduces a concept called carpentry, which is about objects that are created to do philosophical work, to either explain a philosophical concept or highlight some kind of philosophical concern and even though that's not quite the same I think that there's something really cool about mixing creative stuff you know being a bit of an artist and also being a bit of a critic so that's sort of like what I'm really interested in at the moment and I think that that's 
I guess that's been an underlying theme of the stuff that I've produced over the years. I wonder also how much of it had to do with your showing love of Far Cry 2 coming through and that connecting with the audience. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think that that's... The way that I engage with games really isn't... It's not the same way as someone like Brendan Keogh does, if that makes sense. Like, what the way that he enjoys games and plays games, it's very broad, if that makes sense. Like, he's played heaps of games, and he plays lots of games, and he plays lots of different types. He has some that he likes a lot more than others, and that's, like, just natural. That's always going to happen. But he plays heaps and heaps of games. I actually don't play that many games, and I haven't for a really long time. I mean, I... There was a period where I was blogging at SLRC where I consciously made an effort to play more games so that I'd have more material to write about. But even then, it was sort of like I was only playing them because I wanted to write about them. I wasn't actually playing with them because I wanted to play with lots of games, if that makes sense. I tend to engage with games and other things sort of quite, I don't know, I guess one at a time in that sort of way. I get a little bit obsessed about stuff. I mean, I have a very obsessive personality as well. <laughs> I don't know whether that's an open secret or not, but it's true. Hmm. I'd actually forgotten the question. Hmm. I think you asked me about Far Cry 2. Oh, yeah. Just how I got into obsession. And that's really interesting as well, because Far Cry 2 is like, I know, one of the big themes of that game is, I guess, obsession and mad the madness of obsession, because it's like that's all you're ever doing is hunting the jackal. Everything that you do in that game is totally towards that goal. Even if it doesn't look like it at the time, even if you forget that you're doing it, there is this overarching storyline or, I guess, motivational arc that, like, that is the whole game, right? You are out to kill the jackal, and that is all the game is about. And everything that sort of happens along the way is either incidental or, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it reflects on that theme a bit, which is probably part of its strength. True, and uh, in your obsession, you created a couple of hundred-page book. Yeah, well, I I mean, I, it didn't start that way. It started out as a series of blog posts. Just sort of, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll just document this weird thing that I'm going to do as I went along. Actually, let's do this right. Tell me about Permadeath, where that concept of the whole blog post series came from. Mm-hmm. I think I've mentioned it to you before on one of these podcasts, but... Maybe it was in a different context. Um, I think it might have been a different podcast. Yeah. So Permadeath started as an idea in response to a conversation that Clint Hocking and Mandy Hare were carrying out on the blogosphere. I think it was 2009 at the time. Mandy was really interested in how to make player ethical choices more more weighty, I guess, and, and more uh, meaningful. I can't remember what Clint's position on it was, but anyway, I, I think they were having this conversation about like, oh, you want to imbue the choices that the player makes with meaning because that makes a better game and blah, blah, blah. And then you've got this issue of saving and then trying again and that sort of stuff. And I just thought one of the easy ways to get around it is to sort of just not allow saving and backtracking. You just treat it as like a single through narrative and as soon as you're dead, you're dead and that's the end of it. Because, I mean, part of every first-person shooter is about staying alive. So, you know, when you die, it's like, that's it. That's sort of the end of the story. But normally you just reload again, and that bit between the save point and where you die just sort of doesn't happen. And you've, like, lost this whole, I don't know, parallel universe of story or narrative or plot or whatever you want to call it. But in a permadeath sort of thing, if you just say that, well, 
that was when I died and that's the end of the story, then I thought that was kind of an interesting structure. And as I played the game that way and as I blogged about it, it turned out that it was a, yeah, it was a really interesting way to play the game. Go on. I mean, so why was it interesting? Well, I guess that... Well, how did it change your behavior? Yeah, okay, good question. It sort of, at first it made me play really, really conservatively. So I didn't take risks. I didn't I didn't choose weapons that were more fun but were more dangerous. I chose the really easy weapons and I took really safe paths through the world. But that was kind of in response to the fear of dying and, you know, being over. At a certain point, you kind of forget that, you know, you're mortal in the world, I guess, until, you know, you're very viscerally reminded of it. So there was one point where, in a really, really difficult part of the game, I was on a barge. There's nowhere to hide. Mortars come in from all directions. Uh, and then there are boats circling me with machine guns. I got down to half a bar of health. And if you know Far Cry 2, you know that the, as soon as you get down into the last two bars, you're actually in mortal danger if you don't stop and take the time to bandage up your wounds or cauterize a, a wound or whatever. You actually end up bleeding out and dying. So in the midst of trying to kill off all these other enemies, you've got this time limit of like, okay, I have to kill them all off before I bandage it up because if they shoot me while I'm bandaging up, the bandage up fails and I have to start again. But I also can't take too long because then if I do, I'll just run out of health and time and I'll die. So I got really, really close to dying, a little bit over halfway through the game. And that kind of really brought it home. I mean, it, it yeah, it was kind of interesting. It's like, I mean, how often in our everyday life do we think about the fact that we're mortal? I mean... Unless you're a more morbid type personality, you probably don't think about it that much. I mean, I don't. I don't think about it that often. But then we have like a near car crash or something, and then we're suddenly really forcefully reminded of the fact that we're, you know, flesh and blood, and that we will end at some point. I just remembered that around that time, because of your, you uh, started on this project, several other people joined alongside you to do it, and they didn't get quite as far. Yes, yeah, I started playing with. Nels Anderson, as well as Michelle McBride, and both of them played for a fair way and then got killed fairly early on. And Nels Anderson wrote about the experience of it and said that it was actually really, really meaningless. His whole death was like he got touched by a, a car as it, as it drove him over, basically, and he died. And I remember that. And it was super stupid and really, really easy, you know, like the dumbest little mistake ever. But that's sort of it. That's like, that's death in everyday life, isn't it? I mean, you know. But if that had happened to him later on in the game, would that have been imbued with the game's thematic meaning? I don't know. I don't think that, I mean, the, part of the point of death, I guess, is that it's, it is sort of almost arbitrary. And it kind of doesn't really matter where or when it comes. It just sort of, it just happens, right? Um, of course, your death, spoilers, in your permadeath experience came at the uh, climactic shootout. Yeah, so right as my buddies were betraying me, I mean, I guess I learnt the lesson that I should have killed them earlier because they were really hard, hard enough that they killed me. So, yeah, that was sort of interesting. And that was like, I was 10 minutes away from the end of the game, right? And then I got killed. But that was kind of all right. Like, that was, that's fine. Like, that's just the story. That's just how it is. And that was kind of a cool story on its own. In your uh, permadeath write-up, you go into an alternate universe to finish off the game. Was it just because you were ten minutes from the end you decided yeah, to create a Yeah, it was. If I were much earlier, I just would have finished it, and it would have left the story, like, you know, hanging. It would be unfinished game. But I finished it again because 
I guess because I could and it was so close to the end, but also because I wanted to highlight, I guess, that whole, the weirdness of coming back to life and playing it again, you know, and how really bizarre it is. I mean, if you think about it without the kind of, and it's really hard to do, but if you think about it without the kind of experience and knowledge of game mechanics and game culture that we have, coming back to life and then doing the same thing over again, it's actually really, really weird. It's really bizarre. Like, in what other circumstance or media or experience do you ever do anything like that? It's really weird. So I guess doing that and it was sort of, I, I desaturated all the color out of the images and I kind of toyed with the idea of, is he a ghost? Like, what what kind of a, a thing is he? If this were real life, what, like, yeah, what would it be? This is sort of so video gamey that it's not, yeah, it's not a thing that you'd ever see in the real world. But onto the piece itself, is this more like a companion piece to Far Cry 2, or if you never played the game, could you have actually substituted this for playing it? Well, I'm a bit hesitant to say that you could ever substitute any kind of experience for another, um, just because, yeah, they're not the same. It's not the same reading a book as it is playing the game. It's not the same watching a video of the game as playing the game although one is probably more like the other than the other one. So watching a video of someone else playing it is probably more closer to the original experience. But, yeah, it's not really a replacement. I think that you would probably need to be someone who played it to really get the most out of the story, I guess. Yeah. You don't think it stands as a piece on its own for those of gamers, even if they hadn't played Far Cry 2? Uh, I guess I just see too many flaws in it as a piece of writing on its own to say that it stands up on its own. I mean, I went back and read through a bit of it recently, and a lot of it is, I don't know, it's very average writing. <laughs> I gotta say, I mean, um, I guess it's a good sign. I feel that I've improved a lot since then, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's not a it's J.R.R. Martin novel or whatever. But you think it's the scope of the project that's remembered more than anything else? Yeah, I guess. And I think the concept as well is sort of quite memorable. Uh, it came out in 2009. The, uh, you did another big thing in 2009, much earlier in the year. Did I? What was it? In April of 2009 was when you started Critical Distance, the site that this podcast appears on. Oh, yeah. How time flies. Three, almost, yeah, oh, three years ago. Yep, that's been a thing. That's a disquieting thought. Yeah, I guess. I mean, and for a lot of that as well, I was doing this week in video game blogging, the roundup, every week. It was exhausting, let me tell you. It certainly took its toll. I certainly couldn't do it again now. I just don't have the kind of time or really the inclination, I guess. Well, let's start at the beginning. Where did Critical Distance itself come from? That's a good question. I guess it came out of a series of discussions that we kind of were having as a little cadre community type thing around about the end of 2008 about how to sort of grow the community, how best to do that. And there were a couple of ideas that were sort of put forward, but I guess the one that sort of won out and just because I did it was, um, you know, starting a site and curating links and that's been, I guess, really good, I think. And, I mean, a telling uh, example of that is that there are heaps of sites now doing that sort of thing. 
lots and lots of blogs and publications do like lots of linking to the blogosphere and uh, everywhere else. So the whole Penny Arcade report is basically link out sort of style series. The cut. The cut, yeah. That's what they call it. Okay, yeah, so that thing. Rock Paper Shotgun Sunday Papers has been doing the same thing for about as long, actually. I think they might have even beaten us to it a couple of a couple of weeks or something. <laughs> Who or what else? I can't think of any others, but I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are others. Well, I remember you pointed that this group in Germany is doing it for the German blogosphere. Yeah, that's German right. Blogosphere. Superlevel.de, I think, is that website. Yeah, there's a whole heap of them. So, yeah, and that's sort of interesting in, in itself. It's like the internet has recognized that it's not about even so much producing stuff now as it is about finding the stuff that is produced, I think. So and keeping the good stuff in some location that it's easily findable. Yeah. Yeah. So search and search culture and search algorithms and the ability to find things is kinda of important. But uh critical distance changed from the I guess the Wild West first few months to the the present iteration of it. Yep. Care to go into detail? <laughs> well, what do you want to know? I mean, um, I know this is like awkward because I was there for most of it, but I don't know. Well, you tell me. What do you think has changed? Well, in, in the first, if you like, go back to like the first few. There was like there's like posts about specific issues that had popped up occasionally where you do like miniature essays collecting the thoughts of what people thought of this particular issue in this particular week. And then you had the This Week in Video Game Blogging was just another concept among the many variety of posts. And you also had a lot of different writers. There's like a lot of people on the site that have only a single post on Critical Distance. Mm, yeah, well, from I guess that, era. That, that wasn't very long. That was sort of like our experimental early thing. And that was really just testing out to see who was interested, I guess, really. I mean, and, and it, it's sort of like not everybody is interested in being um, involved in something like this. I mean, it takes a lot of time and effort, right? And um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. It's just a lot of people kind of weren't ready or interested in putting the time in. And I'm mean, not blaming them for it. I mean, I'm, I'm very ambivalent about it at the moment. So, <laughs> I, do, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it uh, now. I mean, um, that's not to discount, like, the amazing benefits that it's brought to me, as, like, personally, as well as, you know, what I've been able to give to the community through it, I guess. It's just sort of, yeah, I... It's kind of interesting to hear this, Ambilas, because you are, as I jokingly called you at the very beginning, the the critical distance overlord. Mm. This is your site. Yeah, you've passed on the This Week in Video Game blogging duties to... Chris Ligman, for the mm-hmm. most part. Yeah, he's and, great and does and, an amazing job. And before that, you were passing it off to Ian, myself, and later Chris as much as you could. Yeah. I, I can't imagine doing that for two years. It's like two weeks was enough to wipe you out if you're not prepared for it. Mm, yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what else to say about it, sort of. Did your uh, reading increase or decrease during your overtime with your obligations for this week in video game blogging? I guess it really fluctuated. Sometimes it was, it kind of depended on how much time I had to spare. Like if I was really, really pressed in a week, I hadn't realized and I hadn't like asked someone else to do it. 
I might just be like, oh, God, what was the best things that I read? Okay, here's six that I read that were really good, and then I'll just find some stuff that people have sent in, fill it out, and then I'll just be like, okay, I haven't... Mostly mine. Yeah, I have some, some weeks I didn't even read all of the stuff that you put in, because, I don't know, here's the secret, like, some people are just reliable, too, you know? Like, I mean... Mm-hmm. You can do, you just sort of know that these people have been doing it for a really long time and they're not going to be producing crap, even if it's like, even if they're having like an off week, it's still a lot better than, you know, any old random dude off the street writing about, <laughs> writing the obligatory video games, are they arts post, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's sort of, it's just one little thing that kind of helps save me time when I needed it. As uh, t- as time went on, it's like the the people who used to appear, some of them started to like just sort of vanish. As I guess like the writing quality, if you could say, this like went up as a whole, and the choices and who got in and the curate. Basically, what I'm asking is the curation process. What are your views on it? Uh, I don't know. Um, I guess it's probably worth being a little bit cautious when using the phrase curation because curation itself has a long and important history in, I guess, like art curation. And what we do is kind of related but also different. So there's a different, there's a real difference between internet curation and, say, curating an exhibition for a gallery. And even though it's the same words, I mean, the, the the imperatives for each one are kind of quite different. So it's like art curation is almost in itself an art, whereas internet curation is kind of like... Culling. Sorry? Culling. Yeah, I don't that, know. That's my word for it. Yeah. I guess if you want to think about it sort of differently, it's like working within the... I don't know, it's more engineering, whereas the other one's art, if that makes sense. It's much more technical than it is about, like, aesthetic decisions or, like, real curatorial drives. But, yeah, I mean, and that's not, like, a criticism of it. That's just how it is. And that's the different the differences between the medium of, like, the Internet and, you know, a gallery space or whatever. I can see that. It's just Chris Ligman when... And it has a very, is more curating than what we did in the early years. It's like each person who does a week has a different philosophy on how to curate or cull mm. down or yeah. choose what I, links go in. Yeah, I guess. But like the overriding thing is that, I mean, you can only curate what's there. And what's there is only whatever it was produced this week or, you know, recently. And that is a really big difference. You know, we don't have a hundred years' worth of material to go and dive through and then pick the best of. And if we did, it would make our job ridiculously harder too, right? But uh, Oh, God, I, I can barely keep up. I've just yeah. now just the idea, Yeah, even the idea of going back like through three or four years' worth of blog posts and curating like the best ones is, uh, I don't know, it sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> Whereas like, an, you know, art curator, proper art gallery space curator would, you know, would do that for the history of, I don't know, symbolist Australian painting or whatever. I mean, they're aided yeah. by the fact that all of their stuff is in one, kind of one place. But anyway, I mean, it's just, yeah, again, differences in curation and, and what it requires in, in different places. 
Yeah, with video game criticism, I think you can consider everything before April 2009 a lost cause. Well, I mean, that's kind of a pity as well. Um, that's part of what Critical Distance was supposed to do, was to be something like a, a collective memory or a repository of good stuff. I mean, you should be able to go back to all those old stuff and find it and see what was written about, like, you know, Bioshock when it first came out. Or um, maybe another game that, that we didn't do a critical compilation about. Um, or someone's got a whole pile of links sitting in a Word document. Hmm, yeah. Nudge, yeah, nudge. I think a few people have that, actually. I know, but yours is the most famous. Well, famous to you, maybe. I don't know anyone listening is... Has any idea what you're talking about? <laughs> uh, he's got a he's got a huge Word document full of Far Cry 2 links that he stopped updating about what, two years ago. Yeah, I think I put a couple of more recent ones in, but yeah, no, I haven't I haven't really done anything with it recently or in a long time. You need to hire a stenographer to get to sort that out. I don't even know if they'll do it, but anyway, that's sort of neither here nor there. Yeah. It's kind of a different thing. Around this, uh, what was it like the end of 2009? You closed at LCRC, but you you, moved, you started up a new blog as you entered, uh, I guess, the next phase of your education. Yeah, well, I wanted a place to write about the stuff that I was doing in my PhD, and that sort of only occasionally touches on games, or it only touches on games from a perspective once removed. I guess it's all about the video game criticism blogosphere. And about how, like, internet communities form and, you know, dissipate or, you know, all that sort of stuff. How links get around, how, you know, people's reputations, I guess, are built and how things circulate in the blogosphere. That's what I'm doing. And I'm actually, I'm in the middle of writing it right now. I'm sort of, like, in the middle of Chapter 3. Yeah. And that's I am Abraham, what, com. <laughs> um, no, no, that's so. Uh, that's my my website is just benabraham.net, and it adds like the whole yeah. There's a subdomain at the beginning, and that, it just adds it by itself automatically. Alternatively, you can get there by going to this dot is not a blog dot com, which also redirects to the main page. So I think Adri Adrian and I take full credit for that on yeah. the previous episode. And I'm just going to mention briefly the big hoo-ha you have when you, you thought uh, internet comments aren't conducive or useful for discussion, but I yeah. would just direct you to the earlier episode. Yeah, we had a big discussion about that. But, you know, to update that thought, it's really funny how many people have expressed similar sentiments, like, since taking that sort of position. I mean, even if if a lot of people don't go to that extreme and don't actually turn off their comments, a lot of people recognize that there is a problem with internet comments. Um, and that the bottom half of the internet is never to be read. Yeah, I don't even know if that's the problem, but there is there's probably a couple of problems, some real problems with internet comments, and they're, yeah. yeah. Interestingly enough, since that episode came out, Killscreen, which was a, a big example that you used of a blog that's a wonderful aesthetic that doesn't have comments, has recently added comments. Yeah, that is funny. I guess, as well, though, they cultivated an audience that was okay with not leaving comments. And so now, by enabling them, they're... I mean, everyone who is attracted to the kind of space where you can just blah, crap out whatever old comment and thought 
bubble that what what like you know emerges from the depths of your tortured psyche or whatever. Yeah, I mean that that kind of person has already been turned off kill screen, so they're I think they're already doing better than I mean they have they have solved some of that problem I think for themselves already. You, I mean, no, we may see a horrible internet culture of commenting turning up in kill screen comments as well, but I suspect that they done enough cultivation that that kind of isn't going to be like a huge issue. Getting back to like the concept of uh, video game or criticism in the after, what what is your philosophy or your take on how it should be approached or how you approach it personally? Yeah, I don't know because I guess it's kind of has it kind of changed over the years. Probably that's probably inevitable as well, though. I guess I think so. What I said at the beginning was that I'm interested at the moment in mixing criticism with some kind of creative aspect. So like making things that are criticism. Uh, and I think that that's, that was sort of the drive behind my most recent like video essay thing, which I, I plan to do more of, but they just, they just take so long, right? Unless you're practiced at it. I don't know, even then I think that they take a really long time. If you're doing really, I mean, because it's, it's basically you end up researching a topic. You're not just, unless you're just putting out your crappy opinion or whatever uh, every week, no offense to those video bloggers who do that, then, yeah, like, it's going to take you a long time, and that's sort of part of the point of it. I mean, no one writes... Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm a bit biased. I I much prefer... Well, everyone's lower, more measured stuff than, you know, just farting out a weekly thought bubble. I mean, and there's totally a place for that, and that's cool, but it's just not what I'm interested in, and that's just not my taste at the moment. And I think that that's kind of cool and fine. I guess you could also say that uh, criticism has become a little more abstract from uh, your earlier work, more theoretical. I don't know. Would you say that? I don't know. It just before you were focusing on like specific games or specific instances within games, yeah, and maybe pushing it out further as a concept. But your PhD blog is is very theoretical, yeah. object or oriented ontology. If I may mm. throw that out there, yeah, please. I've learned more about that philosophy from your blogs than I ever wanted to. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, I, yeah, that's fair. That's probably fair. I mean, and that's probably part and parcel of doing a PhD. You do tend to think about the bigger issues that things are, uh, you know, indicative of, rather than starting with a specific and building outwards. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I, I don't have the necessary distance to judge whether my stuff has gotten more abstract or not. I'll leave that up to you. So you don't have the, the distance to judge your own work mm. critically? Yes, I, I don't, so I won't do it. <laughs> well, it's kind of, I guess it's kind of hard to tell what color the house is from inside. Mm. Yeah. I'm running out of things to talk about because I can't, I can't really think of other things. If you have anything that you want to mention that you've done over your, I guess, career as a uh, video game critic. Yeah, not really. Yeah, I'm happy to leave it there if you are. Well, I go, yeah, in that case, I got like my last question. Yep. I'm asking all the people. Sure. What is your favorite video game? My favorite video time? game? I don't know. I guess, I mean, if you'd asked me even six months ago or a year ago, I would have said Far Cry 2, but I haven't played Far Cry 2 in a while, 
So the strength of that memory is kind of fading. I guess my favorite video game is whatever video game I'm playing most of at the moment. And right now it's StarCraft 2. But I probably wouldn't say StarCraft 2 is my favorite video game. So I'll probably just stick with Far Cry, um, Far Cry 2 rather than StarCraft 2. And I suddenly remembered the question I wanted to ask you. Oh, okay. Your war against uh, bad or uncritical video game words, like replayability and immersion, uh-huh. I guess you could say that's a mini-theme of your more recent work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I guess the language that we use and the words that we use are really important, right? And so I think that with a lot of these things, these words are kind of too big, if that makes sense. There's like a million, million, million little parts to them. So replayability, what does even replayability mean? Well, it kind of doesn't mean anything because it means a million things. It means I love this game so much that I'm willing to play through Final Fantasy VII again, even though I'm just seeing all the same dialogue again, I'm fighting all the same enemies, I'm using all the same materia. Why is that replayable? I don't know. Just because it is, right? Or maybe this game is so replayable because it's Tetris, because every game is completely different, even though every game is also exactly the same. You know what I mean? Like, it's mm-hmm. just... Yeah, it doesn't say anything about the game. It's just, like, it's too broad. It's like saying... I don't know. It's like that word nice. It's like, ooh, that's so nice. What, is it ni- what does it even mean? Yeah, all right, you're kind of telling me something about how you feel, but you're not telling me anything about the object itself. Like, if you say, that television show is nice, well, what does that tell me about the television show? It tells me nothing at all, so... Is it competent? Is it a warm, fuzzy feeling after yeah, seeing yeah, exactly. it? Is it just just be more uh, imaginative with your, uh, you know, the words more precise. More precise, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, it's it's never a mistake to be more specific. Let me just say that. And immersion was uh, what your first video essay was about. Yeah, and I mean, and that was sort of in response to um, a talk that Rich. Richard Lamarchand gave at GDC this year. But it was like an idea that I'd, I'd been thinking about for a long time beforehand as well. I actually marked an undergrad honors thesis on the, on the same topic, basically, a few months previous. So that got me thinking about it, and it, it introduced me to a bunch of academic literature about the concept. And so there is a big academic critique of emotion, that's not just from like a functional, you know, game designer perspective either. Yeah, lots of incredibly smart people think that immersion is a stupid word. <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> stupid for describing what we use it for anyway. And you just remind me of another thing that happened to you. Back in uh, 2010, they had the big send Ben to GDC drive. Yeah, yeah, that was amazing. And after coming back from GDC this year, I actually wrote a post just sort of thanking everyone who'd ever been a part of making that happen or who I'd met at GDC because, yeah, I mean, the, the, the effect of of GDC on me personally as a, as a person is, uh, like, it's totally immeasurable. I mean, I, I don't know. I can't even imagine who I would be without having gone to GDC and me, meeting all those people. I don't know. I'm just, I'm incredibly lucky in that respect. I'm terribly blessed to... Uh, to have been sent in the first place and then to be able to afford to go 
on my own sort of pocket two more times since then. Yeah, it's just been the most fabulous form formative experience for me, really. I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it. I, I can't stress enough just how important it has been to connect with these people. I mean, video game critics and journalists and people who write about video games are some of the smartest and nicest people in the world. I mean, I've literally never met nicer people. I don't know. I don't know what it is about about the community, but it, it just uh, yeah, it's something really special. That seems to be a theme with your thing: connection, interconnectivity between people. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah, I'm really uh, really interested in, and, and I care a lot about. I guess relations and relationships. Even if sometimes I'm sort of too polite to be, intru- you know, willing to intrude, and you know, yeah, I, I don't know really what else to say about that as well. It's sort of something that I care. I care more about people than I do about video games. <laughs> I guess. Oh, it's wonderful to talk to you, Tom. No worries. Thanks for um, thanks for inviting me, Eric. Uh, absolutely. Thanks. It's been a blast. See you, Brett.